you know, one of the things I, first things I learned about Colorado when I first moved here, um, I always thought that aspen trees were just like all the other trees. But really, you know, a, a stand of aspen is just one plant. And uh, I've, I've even heard it said that the, the, the largest living organism in the world is a stand of aspen trees. Because I'm thinking about community and about friendship and about church and things like that. I'm thinking, really, I think the largest living organism in the world maybe is a community of believers. But there's this one thing that's kind of linking us together, like our roots are kind of underneath the surface is pulling us together. And it's this thing going, um, I want to follow Christ. And the response to that is, yeah, me too. I don't really know how to do that very well, but maybe if all of us kind of you know, stuck together, when the wind blows, we can kind of lean on each other and we can help each other grow. And that's what we're going to talk about, this third value today, this, this, uh, this authentic community. What does that look like? All right, so as we kind of continue down this Colorado Trail experience that we've been on, what we've been kind of learning is this, and maybe some of you are like me and you're very directionally challenged. Anybody? Anybody like that? All right, you get lost all the time. I do that all the time. Don't point at people, all right? Point at yourself. Uh, When you're on a trail, when you're on a hike, when you're on a mission where you're trying to go somewhere, you're trying to get somewhere, it's important, number one, to know where you're trying to go, number two, how you're going to get there, which means it's very, very important to not only have a map, but to trust the map. And I have actually gotten myself in trouble many times for not actually trusting the map because I'm a guy and I know better than the map, right? That's just kind of the way that plays out. The other thing that we've been learning is simply this. Um, along this trail called life, that's been kind of our metaphor, um, we, we all at some point on the trail will inevitably have to deal with this person named Jesus. And specifically with what he did on the cross. And we learned last week that that's the most important thing we will ever reconcile in our hearts and in our minds is who is Jesus and does what he did on the cross mean anything to me in my life? Because that changes everything. So what we've walked through, what we've journeyed through is our first two values. The first one is simply this, biblical authority. We believe the Bible is like our roadmap for life. It reveals how we get connected back to God and how we live the life that he has for us. And the second value is relational intimacy. We believe that through Jesus, because of what he did, we can actually be reconnected back with God, which is what, what we've been talking about, what Jim's been talking about. And today what we're going to do is we're going to move from the if all that's true to the then part of this, this deal that we're journeying down. In other words, if that's true, if we're trying to live our lives under the authority of the Bible and we believe that what Jesus did counted for us, then wouldn't it be better, and this is what Jim kind of alluded to in the video, wouldn't it be better if we went down this bumpy, rocky, difficult trail called life together instead of alone? Wouldn't that just be better? Now, Here's the thing, all right? I am probably maybe the least qualified person on the planet to talk to you about this. And here's why. Because I'm naturally not inclined towards together as much as I'm inclined towards alone. All right? Here's what that means, okay? Some of you are nodding your heads. You're with me, and you're the ones who are sitting like four seats from the person next to you, all right? Um, You're like me. Uh, When I I grew up, I'm, I'm an only child, so it was just me and my mom most of the time in the house, which means this, all right? My house right now, with five actual human beings living in it, all right, plus a dog, plus two hermit crabs that took up residence in our house yesterday, one is now lost in our house somewhere, a little bit scary, all right? And a couple fish. All of that feels terribly crowded to me sometimes. It's like people 
everywhere, all right? And they're all making noise at the same time. It's just, it's unbelievable, all right? When I was younger and I played, played basketball, I was always the point guard, which worked out great for me because I didn't have to rely on anybody else to call the player, distribute the ball. I got to do that. that that's the way that worked. When I went to college, I moved into my dorm, and then this guy called an RA, all right, walked into my room and said, hey, Scott, now that you're all moved in, you and your roommate, Andy, you need to make your way up to President's Hall. What's President's Hall and why do I need to go there? President's Hall is where you're going to gather for freshman orientation. I went, what's freshman orientation? He said, well, what you're going to do basically is you're going to play a bunch of games. You're going to do a bunch of icebreakers and you'll get to meet your fellow classmates. And I said, thank you so much for describing that to me. I grabbed my golf clubs, went out to my car and went to the driving range for the rest of the day by myself. Because to me, icebreakers and games and forced interaction is like hell. That's what that is for me. All right. Um, I like to hike. Most of the time, I hike alone. I like to ride my mountain bike. Most of the time, I ride my mountain bike alone. All right? I'm a, I'm a little bit of a loner. Some of you are like me. Some of you aren't. When, when given the choice between let's go out for a big evening with a bunch of people at a big party versus stay at home, my first inclination is stay at home. That's, that's my first inclination. Now, you can chalk that up to personality. You can chalk that up to a bunch of different things. But until something goes wrong, it's all good, right? But when something goes wrong, it reveals that that's kind of an unwise way to deal life. Take it back to the trail. It's all good when I get back home after riding my bike alone. It looks like everything's fine. When I get back from a hike that I've been on alone and I get back safely, it's great. But if I wreck my bike, which I happen to do quite often, all right? If I wreck my bike and I get really, really hurt, there's a problem. If I'm hiking and I fall off of some ledge and I'm alone, there's a problem, right? Becomes really clear in that moment that I need what the song said. What? Help. I need someone. That was the Beatles, by the way. All right? I watched like some younger kids over here like, what is this song? They're a little known British band. They caused a bit of a hubbub, you know? All right? (laughs) We need help, right? I need help. When I find myself injured and laying on the side of the road, it becomes very clear in that moment it was very unwise for me to go hiking or mountain biking alone. And the truth is it was always unwise. It just takes falling and getting injured sometimes to make that clear. And that's what I want to talk about today. See, what's interesting is that you and I live in what's been called the most connected generation of all time because we have such technology at our fingertips. I mean, we've got things like Skype and online chatting and Facebook and text messaging and a million other things. But wouldn't we all agree that we're also, for some reason, a very lonely and isolated culture? Studies have shown that this is by far the most lonely culture that America has ever had. And what's ironic is we live in such close proximity to each other in most places, but we couldn't be more distant from each other. And there's something deep within us that cries, that screams, this is not the way it was meant to be. And that thing that cries and screams that is exactly right. Because if you back it all the way up to our creator, God, and that's where we're going, God, interestingly enough, is in and of himself community. There's this great mystery. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Meaning when God created people, he didn't create people because he was lonely at all. Out of the overflow of the perfect, beautiful community that God had in and of himself, he created people. 
And what's interesting is in that whole creation thing, along the way, at each moment as he created sun, moon, stars, rocks, oceans, animals, people, fish, birds, the whole nine yards, at each moment along the way, he would stop and go, that's good. I'm good. That's good. I did a good job. He would stop and go, that's good. And the only moment in all of creation, as that's all happening, that we sense that God is somehow not satisfied is when he looks at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. You need someone you can connect with who's like you, and you don't have that. You're alone. He was not alone. Millions of animals and creatures in life all over the planet, but none like him. And so he creates Eve, and he commands Adam and Eve, share your lives with each other. And ever since, God's been commanding and calling and summoning human beings to live our lives together, to share our lives in this thing called community. And here's what I find very troubling about that. We screw it up at every turn. We mess up this beautiful thing called community every 10 seconds, it seems like. In fact, what I was originally going to do with this message is I was going to kind of trace through the Bible all the beautiful, wonderful moments of harmony and community and oneness that are represented in the Bible. And I realized this would be the most short sermon of all time. Because as you read the Bible, there's only a couple moments where it goes well. Like it starts with, it starts with God and, and that community is perfect. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He makes Adam and Eve and it's perfect for a little while. But then they turn their back on him and say, we don't want to do this thing called life with you. We don't want to share our life with you. We'll do it our own way. And this thing called sin enters the world and has major ramifications. One of their kids kills the other kid. And from there, it just gets worse and worse and worse until finally God decides to start over and he starts over with this, this family, this guy named Noah and his family. He puts them on a boat and he keeps them safe and they do pretty well while they're on the boat. But as soon as they get off the boat, Noah, because he's been on a boat with his family for a long time, gets drunk. All right. He gets drunk. He gets naked and he passes out in a tent, drunk and naked. And his son sees him and laughs at him, makes fun of him. And then when Noah finally comes out of his stupor and realizes what his son has done, he curses his son. Like there's a paragraph in the Bible. He curses his son and they become very dysfunctional from that moment on. All right. It gets ugly. It gets messed up. Fast forward a little bit. God speaks to this guy named Abram and he says, I'm going to start a community of people and it's going to be beautiful and I'm going to start it with you. And Abram goes, small problem. I'm like 90 years old and I don't have any kids. So how that going to work? And he goes, I'm going to give you a son between you and your wife. I'm going to give you a son. And Abram doesn't trust God, takes matters into his own hands, sleeps with the housekeeper, which never goes very well. And things get ugly from there. All right. You fast forward a little bit after that. There's this kind of good moment with this guy named Joseph who reconciles with his very dysfunctional family. He had a liar for a father, 11 brothers who sold him into slavery, but they reconcile for a brief moment in a place called Egypt. And then uh, Joseph, he becomes the second in charge. He's like the second in charge of the king in Egypt and things are going really well until Joseph dies and the king dies and the new king comes into place, looks around and goes, all of Joseph's people have multiplied quicker than our people. We better put them in slavery before they take over. And so the Hebrew people go into slavery and it gets very messy for 400 years. And then God speaks to this guy named Moses and says, I'm going to use you to lead people out of slavery into this beautiful place of community. And we're going to call it the promised land. And as soon as God works all these miracles and leads them through the Red Sea and all these beautiful things happen, the second they step foot on the journey, the second they step foot on the path in the desert towards the promised land, they start whining and bickering and complaining and they blow it up. It's messy. 
There's a couple good moments along the way, if you fast forward a little bit, with this guy named David and his son named Solomon, but then it gets really messy. Finally, Jesus comes on the scene. And what does Jesus do? Jesus calls people to himself, forms a community, and they travel together, and they hang out with each other. But what do they do the entire time? These disciples, these followers of Jesus, they bicker, they complain, they jockey for position, and they mess things up all along the way until finally Jesus ascends, goes back to heaven after he's put on the cross, raised from the dead. He goes back to heaven. This thing called the church starts and it has a beautiful, beautiful moment. Look at this. It's in Acts chapter four, beginning in verse 32. Look at this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no, this is amazing, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And it was beautiful. But I've got to be honest with you, Okay. As someone who's worked in in a church for 11 years now, going on 11 years, I read verses like that that the church historically kind of holds up and goes, that's who we should be. That's what we got to chase after. That's what we got to be. Come on, let's go. I look at verses like that after 11 years of doing ministry, and it actually, I'll be honest, it just frustrates me. It just frustrates me. Because it's like a mirror going, look what you aren't. And look how far from this you are. And why would you even bother to try to get there? Because it's too hard. It's too difficult. That's kind of how I feel. But if you actually read the rest of the New Testament, it becomes really, really clear that that is not the way it stayed. It got really, really messy. Um, If you don't believe me, just go home tonight and read a couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. There was this church in this place called Corinth. It was messed up. I mean, it was messy. They didn't share with each other. They took advantage of each other. Um, People were starving while other people were were eating a bunch of food. They were actually in the church service. Some people would go to communion and drink all the wine to the degree that they got drunk. I mean, it was a messy, messy place. Messy people. People not playing well with each other. Sound familiar? So here's my question. Why doesn't God just stop it? (laughs) Why doesn't God just stop calling you and me to share our lives with each other? If I'm so messy and you're so messy and when we get together we make a bigger mess, why doesn't he stop calling us to get together? Because here's what I do with my kids. I don't know about you, but after a while when my kids don't play well with each other, you know what I do? I go, hey, okay, okay, you go to the top floor You go to the basement. In between is called peace, all right? And you're both going to be out of my sight, right? That's the way that works. So I'm going to put you both in proverbial timeout because you can't play well with each other, so stay away from each other for a while. Why doesn't God just put us in timeout? Why doesn't he send us to opposite ends of the spectrum and just say, stay away from each other because when you get together, you make a bigger mess? Why is he so insistent on accomplishing his will and what he's going to do through a community of people? Why? And I guess my second question is a little more practical even. It's simply this. Why would I bother? Why why would I bother to share my life with other 
people. If it's that messy and it's that risky and I'm this busy, and I'll be honest, I'm busy, okay? I got, I got three kids. I got a full-time job. I want to have a little bit of rest, a little bit of break somewhere. And it seems like every time I pull up my calendar on my computer, it's been filled up. And I don't know how it happened, but there's hardly any free time in the midst of that. And so why would I take any of that free time and try to share my life with other busy people? And why would you? Let's just be real practical and real honest. And let's just call it into the room, okay? If we're talking about authentic community tonight, some of us have been around the church long enough to know, um, is what I'm going to do tonight try to push us towards um, some sort of room or house where we're all going to cry on each other's shoulders and we're going to hold hands and we're going to pray a lot and share our feelings? Because if that's where you're trying to push me, I'm out. Like, I'm not in for that. And probably a lot of us are thinking the same thing. So maybe it'd be helpful for me to define authentic community because honestly, those two words are about as cliche church words as you can find. Authentic community. At its deepest level, I think is simply this. It's just real. And by that, I mean not fake. Life together. Real life together. I mean the little stuff, the big stuff and everything in between. Real life together. See, I think one of the biggest mistakes that the churches have a tendency to make in, in attempts to get people into community is that we force and manufacture unrealistic meetings. Anybody want to go to a forced, unrealistic, manufactured meeting? Anybody? Because I've got enough meetings in my life, and you probably do too. So that's not at all what I'm going to push or advocate for today. See, what I'm going to talk about today, what I'm going to push for today is something much more organic much more natural, and because of that, probably a lot slower growing, but I hope a lot more real. See, what we're going to talk about today is something that could start just over a conversation in the lobby. It's something that could start by just going to a Rockies game and talking to the person next to you. It it could start by sitting in the bleachers and saying, you know what, you're at the same game every week with me, same practice every week with me, maybe we could just talk for a second. And it starts with things like that. You see, Jesus said, there's a way of living that if we'll get value number one and value number two right in our hearts, value number three will naturally flow from it. He kind of said it like this. One day somebody came up to him and said, Jesus, um, you seem to be pretty smart. You seem to know some stuff. So um, considering all the rules and laws and things in the Old Testament, which one's the greatest? And Jesus went, without hesitating, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And... The second is like it. In other words, here's a bonus because you can't pull these two things apart. The second is linked to it. The second goes with it. You can't separate them. The second is, and love your neighbor as yourself. And can I, let me just be honest, all right? I wish he would have left that second part off. Because I can kind of get my brain and my heart around loving God. Because if I can get my brain and my heart around value number one and value number two, that he loved me so much that he gave me grace, he didn't punish me, he sent his son for me, that I I can get with that. Thank you. I love you for that. But you guys, come on. You guys are messy, all right? Because you're people. And I'm messy. I'm hard to love, aren't you? But Jesus says you can't pull these two things apart. And it's not just Jesus that says it. It finds its way all over the Bible. I mean, if you got them, just flip over to 1 John chapter 4. It's 1 John, so it's way back towards the back of your Bible, right before Revelation. It's also in your programs. It'll be on the screens. But we're going to track through a handful of verses here, all right? See how this plays out. John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends. Now, just scratch that out if that's on your program and in your Bible. The best way to translate that is simply this. Beloved. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed, demonstrated His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into this world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, let me say this as clearly as I can, all right? You are loved. That was last week, right? You are loved. And it was made clear, it was demonstrated, it was played out, it was dramatized in the fact that Jesus came to this earth and took the punishment that you and I deserved so that we wouldn't have to receive the punishment. God is love and it was demonstrated in a historical fact when he sent Jesus. And if that's true, then that would have some pretty big ramifications. Look at verse 11. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. That's an amazing statement. God's love can be made complete in us. Does that mean that there's something somehow lacking in God's love? No. Here's what it means. God's love reaches its intended goal only when we, out of the overflow of the love that we've received from Him, love one another. God's love was given to us, not just for ourselves, but so that we could overflow with love and care for one another. But maybe it'd be helpful even to define love, because in the English language, we're kind of handicapped on this one. We only got one word for it. So we love a movie, we love pizza, we love our iPhone, we love our kids. So what does love actually refer to here? In the Greek, it's the word agape, which most often refers to God's love for us, but also is used of how we love God and how we can love each other. If you define it, agape love is simply this. It's sacrifice, seeking another's good at one's own cost. Isn't that true? You can't love without making yourself vulnerable. Love will cost you. That's what love is. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote all the Narnia stuff, he said it this way. Listen. There's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and you, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. In other words, if you don't want your heart to get broken at some point, don't even love your dog and certainly don't love a cat. I mean, don't do that, all right? <laughs> Sorry, it's just easy, all right? Keep, keep with me. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock up your heart safe in the casket or or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. Oh, it won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable. It'll be impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. In other words... The alternative to a vulnerable, growing, loving heart is a cold, dying heart. Uh, Another way of saying this would be this. uh, Shared life where we love each other is risky and messy. It's risky and messy. And God demonstrated that perfectly when He sent His Son to this messy place and went on a risky mission. Died on a cross. So I guess i got to ask some hard questions. To you and to me. How's your heart? How's my heart? Is it cold? Hard? 
Do you have a tendency to kind of protect your heart, to kind of lock it up, to seal it up so that no one and nothing can hurt it? Is it safe in there? Or maybe your heart's just really busy and unable to respond to anyone else. Let me ask it this way. Is there anywhere in your life where your heart's actually on the line? Because if it's not, it's an indication that maybe you're just suffocating your heart. See, John, he knows that we need repetition. So he's going to say basically the same thing another way. Look at this, verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him, and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is what? Love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. In this way, says it again. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, get this, we are like Him. Who's Him? God. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is is not made perfect in love. Sum all that up. Sum it all up. God loves you. So you don't have to hide You don't have to hide anymore. You're free. You can be confident that God's ultimate goal is not to punish you. John Stott, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. We cannot approach God. We can't approach Him in love and hide from Him in fear at the same time. So many people walk around so scared that if there's a God out there, His ultimate desire must be to punish me because of the things I've done. And can I just tell you, if that was God's ultimate desire, I'm pretty sure He wouldn't have sent Jesus to this earth. If God's ultimate desire was my punishment and yours, you know what he would have had to do? Nothing. He could have sat with his arms folded and kept Jesus at his side, but he didn't. He sent Jesus to this earth so that we could see him and see what love is. And understanding that drives out fear. Because as John said, fear is only there because we're afraid of punishment. But if the punishment was taken by Jesus, we don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. Which means you're free. You're free not to hide and you're free to love others. Which is the ultimate result. Look at this, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I got a question. Why does John keep talking about people, other people out there, and call them my brother? Like, why does he keep using these intimate familial terms to define people out there who I'm not related to? I think because he's trying to point out to us exactly what Jim said in that video, that like those Aspens, because of Jesus and through Jesus, we're connected at the root, and the root is Jesus. He connects us not only back to God, but he connects us to each other. And he's saying, listen, if you say you love God who's invisible, but you don't love or you hate someone else who's standing right in front of you, that's an indicator that something is off in our hearts. Because that same perfect love that drives out fear drives out hate. And hate doesn't always have to be this aggressive, active thing, does it? Hate can actually be a very passive thing. Think back to when you were in school. What's one of the most hateful things that kids can do to one another? 
It's when kids circle up and form little groups to the exclusion of other kids, pretending as if those other kids didn't exist, pretending as if those other kids didn't matter. It's one of the most hateful and powerful things human beings can do to each other. So, Jesus says, if you want to boil it all down, this whole thing, the whole Bible, you want to boil it all down? It's really simple. It's just not easy. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. But I guess I still got some questions. And the first one still kind of hangs out there. Why does God insist on continuing to call us to do this if we don't do it well? I think it's because of this, all right? Community, shared life exists to display who God is and what He's done through how we love each other. Let me say it again. Community exists to display who God is and what He's done through how we love each other. Let's do it this way, okay? Uh, could we just admit, all right, that we're very messy? All right, can we, can we start there? We're very messy people. And what I mean by that is this. Um, if God told us to paint a picture of our life, it would look something like what my kids paint for me and I put on my fridge. It would be messy, right? I mean, there's deep, dark, like hurt and sadness and pain. And then there's like, there's, there's conflict. There's conflict on top of that and it blends with the sadness and the pain and it's still very, very messy and it overlaps. But it, it is also, there's some good stuff that goes on. There's some things that go well. There's some life that happens. There's some, there's some love that happens. There's some joy that even happens and there's some sunshine in our life, right? But it overlaps with the pain and it overlaps with the sadness and it overlaps with all the good, the bad and the ugly and everything in between. And there's stress that comes along with it. It blends in there. And there's all these things that blend to become kind of this backdrop of our lives. And it's very, very messy, right? So the idea is in the midst of this thing called community, could we somehow, this is what God's calling us to, could we somehow with our lives on the backdrop of our lives in the canvas of our lives, paint a picture of who God is and what he's done with our lives. And that's a vertical thing. God has done something for us. He's come down for us. But the only way for us to paint the picture of who God is and what He's done is for us to love each other. And that's a horizontal thing. You see, the cross is the picture that we're trying to paint tonight. It is the very thing that demonstrates exactly what we're chasing after. It is the cross that is so appealing to the watching world. And at the same time is very, very messy, right? And I know that bothers all you neat freaks out there, right? <laughs> You're going to watch my hands for the rest of the night, I know. All right, so let me clean them up a little bit. But let's just be really clear, okay? The first church was just as messy as us. Do you know the context that the first church was born into? Roman oppression? Taxes as high as 80 90%? Crime rate through the roof, murder through the roof, people locking their doors, afraid to trust each other, not sharing with each other at all, living in isolation and fear. And then this community was born that did things differently. They shared their stuff. They left their doors unlocked. They took care of each other's kids. They fixed meals with one another and actually ate them together. They trusted one another and gave to each other when each other had needs. And it was 
beautiful. And the thing that I find amazingly striking about the whole thing is this. Do you know where that first church started? The very city where Jesus was crucified. Here's what I mean. Most of the people in the city watched Jesus carry that cross up that hill and watched him get slaughtered. A lot of the people in the city also saw him after he was slaughtered, risen from the dead and walking around town. And it made no difference in their life. That's amazing. To the degree that right before Jesus ascends to heaven, it tells us some of his disciples were standing there on the mountain with him and they still doubted. They're looking at him. They still doubted. Do you know what it was that deeply transformed the city? Not Jesus dying on a cross and rising from the dead in front of their faces. You know what transformed the city? When a bunch of people did life differently. When a bunch of people demonstrated who God is and what He's done through how they loved each other and they painted a picture of the cross that people could see impact their daily lives and they wanted it desperately. Now, here's my question. If we, lonely, isolated, separated from one another to different degrees or another, if we would somehow take steps in that direction to demonstrate who God is and what He's done and love each other, wouldn't our city change too? Wouldn't our community change too? I think it would paint a beautiful, messy picture of the cross. But let's just be honest, all right? So if we can get our brains and our hearts around that question, okay, so that's why God continues to call us into this so that others will see. Let's just get real selfish for a second, okay? Still, tell me what's in it for me. Why would I bother? Why would I bother to share my life with others? I'll take it back to the trail, all right? So every time I've gone on a hike with other people or every time I've hopped on my bike with other people, I come back from that thinking, that was fun. I should do that more often. Every time. And every time I go, why, why do I do this by myself so often? See, here's the thing, all right? This shared life deal, this community thing, really boils down to, in the practical sense, I need you. And you need me, and we need each other. Because when you're hiking down a trail, or when you're riding down a trail, it's just better to do it with people along the way. Isn't it? You go further and you go faster. Because it takes your mind off of all the stresses and all the things along the way. It's at least a nice distraction, if nothing else, right? But if you really boil it down to even a deeper level, if you fall, if you wreck, you get hurt, it's not just better, it's crucial, isn't it? It's crucial. See, around here, we, we have a clarifying question we ask all the time in order to kind of... This helps you get at the heart of whether you're living kind of a shared life or not. We ask it a lot. Um, who are your 2 o'clock in the morning people? Meaning, if and when life falls apart at 2 o'clock in the morning, who would you call? And could they and would they be there in a matter of minutes? The answer to that question indicates to what degree you're sharing your life with other people. But we avoid it, don't we? We avoid this shared life thing for, I think, a number of reasons. I think one reason that some of us avoid shared life is we don't want to be the one to make that call. 
It's kind of humiliating, isn't it? It's kind, of, it's kind of depressing to have to admit that I need and I'm hurt and I'm broken or this broke down and I just need you because I can't do it myself. It's kind of hard for some of us. Some of us, though, let, let's be painfully honest here, okay? And you're a lot like me, okay? Perhaps the reason that we avoid community is not because we don't want to be the one to make the call. We actually would rather not receive it. Because 2 o'clock in the morning, calls are messy. And my life, I mean, it may be kind of um, separated from other people, but at least it's organized. I mean, my life, it may be, be kind of isolated, but at least it's not messy. And so we avoid community because we really don't want to be the one to get the call. Some of us, though, I think we avoid community specifically because of the phrase that's on this shirt, right? Because that whole me too thing we talk about where we go, you got your stuff, your brokenness, your shame, your sin, your baggage, your experiences, all that. You, you got your stuff and me too. It's all good as long as we're just sitting in a chair and listening to somebody's story, right? But when you're actually sitting with somebody and they kind of share their story and then they kind of look at you like, well, what's your story? That's a little scary, isn't it? To actually say, here's who I am, and here's where I've been, and here's where I hope to go, and here's where I'm scared, and to kind of unveil all that, to actually say me too, is a very, very scary proposition for a lot of us. See, if we're really, really honest, we're a lot of us avoiding shared life because we just don't want to deal with the mess that it will inevitably bring. But Jesus... For some reason, he just keeps pushing, he keeps pulling, he keeps prodding, he keeps hoping, he keeps, he keeps looking at us going, would you go in this direction towards shared life? See, one day, this lawyer walked up to Jesus and went, hey Jesus, um, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus goes, well, in typical Jewish fashion, this is the way they taught, he, he, he said, well, what do you read? How do you see it in the scripture? And the man responded. He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ding, ding, ding. He even got the bonus question right. He apparently had heard Jesus talk about this before, and everybody's applauding him with a golf clap. Well done. And Jesus goes, great. Just go and do that. That's awesome. Then the guy presses a little further. He goes, hold on a second, Jesus. Um, and it says he did this to justify himself. He said, hey, Jesus, And who is my neighbor exactly? In other words, I'm very interested in you justifying my actions in regards to not loving her and not loving him and not loving them. So could you make me feel better? Jesus is not interested in that. And so he paints a picture through a story. He says, listen, one day this guy was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers and they beat him within an inch of his life, stripped him naked and took all of his money and all that he had with him and left him for dead. And then the story intensifies. And then a little while later, a, a priest walks by and everybody goes, oh, well, this is the prime candidate to help the guy because he was a very religious guy. But strangely enough, it takes a turn. The priest sees the guy in his deepest moment of need and doesn't do anything to him. He just passively walks to the other side of the road and keeps going. He hates him. Another guy walks by. He's a Levite. He's an assistant in the temple, big into worship, right? He, he walks by and they're going, well, this guy, he'll be the one, you know, because they're a little more humble than the priests. And so he'll be the one to help. And he sees the man in his need and does the same thing. He hates him. And then here's where the story gets really crazy, very explosive. Jesus says, then a Samaritan walks by and every person in the room went, what? 
A, a who? A what? Because the Jews hated Samaritans and the Samaritans hated Jews because of deep-seated racial disunity. The least likely candidate to help this man, Samaritan, sees the man in his need, gets down off of his donkey, gets down on the level with the man, pours oil and wine on his wounds, bandages him as best as he can in that moment, puts him on his donkey, takes him back to a hotel, puts him up in the hotel, gives the hotel manager extra money so that he can take care of him while he's away. And he says, when I get back, if it costs you more than this, I'll pay you the difference. And Jesus now, story time's over, looks back at the attorney, the lawyer, and says, who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the attorney, because he's a smart guy, ever so reluctantly goes, well, I suppose the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, correct, go and do it. You know what I find just really, really interesting about that story? Jesus never answered the question. The question was, who is my neighbor? And he never answered it. He told the man to stop being concerned with who is his neighbor and go be a neighbor to everyone and anyone. See, it's risky. It's messy. Oh, it'll cost you something. Probably cost you a lot. This shared life thing, this loving others thing. It's messy, but isn't it beautiful? It's a lot like the cross. Messy, gory, bloody, down and dirty, but somehow at the same time, beautiful. It's a beautiful mess. So flat irons, here's my question. Could we get a little messier? No matter where you are on this spectrum, whether you're totally isolated and alone and in no relationships with anyone, or whether you're over here on this end of the spectrum and you've been around here forever and every person you come into contact with seems like somebody that you've known for forever and you're deeply connected with, most of us probably being somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, could we, wherever we find ourselves on those extremes, take a step? Take a step in the direction of shared life with each other. Here's a few things we've got going on out there. These won't do it for you, but our hope is this will help. Uh, the first one is this. We've got some things coming up called Backyard Summer Gatherings. Backyard Summer Gatherings. If you'll go to the front page of our website, you'll see a big button on the left side that says Backyard Summer Gatherings. What we've done is we've recruited some people who are going to host some big barbecue parties either in their backyard or in their community, their neighborhood, their park, whatever, and they're in different cities and different towns all around this place. All you have to do is go online, click on the button. You'll see the ones that are there. All you have to do is show up. That's all you got to do, all right? They're at different times, different places, all over the map. Another thing you could do is this. Um, this Wednesday night, um, we're going to have a community group night in here. In other words, if you're in some sort of shared life experience with other people and you're open to other people joining that, becoming a part of that, or if you're looking to become a part of some sort of shared community experience with people, show up in here on Wednesday night at 6.30. We've done this a handful of times. It's been great every time. We just help you get connected with other people. But you've got to kind of put one foot in front of the other and show up. 6.30, right here, this Wednesday night. Last thing is this. Flatiron's list is always out there. We've got people who are sharing their lives in totally different ways and totally different expressions all over the place at all different times doing all kinds of different things. You've got to get in on there and check it out. Now, last thing is this. It's just simply time to stop hiding. It's time to stop hiding. And a lot of us have been hiding for a long time because we're afraid. Can I be honest with you, all right? What do you have to lose at this point? Go to a Rockies game. If it goes bad and the person who sits next to you annoys the fire out of you, at least you got to go to a Rockies game and you're only out a couple hours. You can leave before the seventh inning, right? And you start back over. 
But there's a chance that that conversation could lead to another conversation and hanging out sometime, and there's a chance that could become a friend. What do you got to lose? You go to a cookout, you eat some food, you play some games. You don't even have to really talk to anybody that much. Worst case scenario, you just go home a little more tired than when you came and you at least got to eat while you were there. But what if? What if your future 2 a.m. person is at that cookout? Where you come in here and you feel kind of weird and it's kind of awkward at first or whatever. Worst case scenario, you leave after an hour, you lost an hour. Best case scenario, and we've got story after story after story about this, you meet somebody who you connect with. That doesn't mean that you go, you know, the next day you're sharing your story and sharing your life. No, it just may mean that you go grab coffee. But it's a start and it's a step and it's a step in the right direction. Because perfect love casts out fear. And we in this place, this community, we will not always get it right. We will not always perfectly demonstrate God's love. It'll be messy most of the time. But we got to give it a shot. Because God didn't let go of us. We can't let go of each other. Let's pray. God, come before you. Um, Some of us, we're just so fearful. We're so fearful of trying to connect with other people because we're afraid we'll get rejected because we've been rejected before. And God, some of us, though, we're so connected with people, we don't even see people who don't have relationships. We don't even remember what it was like to not know anybody. God, would you help us? If that's us, would you help us to see people and to see their need and to love each other, to love each other well? God, most of all, could we, as a church, could we just demonstrate who you are and what you've done through how we love each other? And God, we trust that you will get all the credit, you get all the glory, and people will come to know your son if we will just love you and love each other well. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.